Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Either you're with us or you are with the terrorists. If you've got health care already, then you can keep your plan if you are satisfied with it. Donald Trump is not going to be president of the United States. Take it to the bank. Together, we will make America great again. We shall never surrender. Never surrender. It's what you've been waiting for all day. Buck Sexton with America Now. Join the conversation. Call Buck Toll Free at 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. Sharp mind, strong voice. Buck Sexton. Happy Friday, everybody. Buck Sexton here with you in the Freedom Hunt. Very much uh, a pleasure, an honor, a privilege, as always, to have you hanging out with me. Uh, Thank you so much. And let me give you a little bit of a sense of the roadmap ahead for the show today. Uh, We're going to start off with political violence, Antifa, anti-fascists. Talk about them. Some truth about them. An incredible article that establishes what I have thought all along was the case which is that the media is lying about who Antifa is going after on purpose. They're not telling us stories about what's really going on when it comes to, quote, Nazi punching on purpose. There's a reason for this, and I will get to that in just a few moments. Uh, Also, another uh, excellent piece uh, called or titled uh, Transgender Trump's Treason. Some of you may be guessing where that's going. I'll get to that later on in this hour. And then... Uh, some updates on Hurricane Harvey, uh, some troubling stuff going on with Google and political censorship on the web. Uh, also, the history of Labor Day, as you will not hear it anywhere else. Some of the some of the swept under the rug aspects of Labor Day, or as your local union one four two would probably call it, Labor Day. Uh, and then also a bit of. Uh, discussion on workplace and how people are adapting to it's a it's going to be a cooler discussion than i'm making it sound right now on that one i promise that'll be late in the show but trust me uh and we'll, we'll get there and we'll have a, a fun chat i promise that'll be uh, hour three of the show coming up in a bit so first antifa um you're familiar with these guys Tw- <laughs> I mean, just a lot of noise and chants and yelling and, you know, we, we could we could just play. And it's tough because you got to make sure that there's a lot of bleeping that we got to do because they're all cursing and screaming. They hate the cops. They hate the state. They, I covered these guys. They're not new, as I've been telling you. And uh, I have the photographic proof, the same dress code of the all black and the black face mask, the same tactics, the uh, t- the hatred of police, the violent rhetoric about bringing down the state and fighting fascism and fighting oppression and all this has been around for years it's just that trump has given them a much uh, more alluring storyline a much more potent narrative now on the left because trump is actually a fascist they say right that's they've been opposing fascism for years in their minds but you know they they've put down the PlayStation controllers, you know, here and there, and they've banded together and been, you know, live streaming their little marches, and, you know, we hate the cops, we hate the state, you know, destroy the state, make war on the state, all this stuff. 
For years they've been doing this. Decades they've been doing this. But now Trump makes it seem like to some on the left, oh, maybe they're maybe they're kind of needed now. They used to just be ignored, but now there has been a strange embrace of them by some in the Democratic Party and a an attempt to, as I call it, normalize Nazi punching. And to rally around this concept of people using violence against speech. That's the core here. They are using violence to oppose speech they do not like. And the way that they justify this is to say that it is against fascism or in more, uh, you know, common parlance, they're Nazi punching. They are not punching Nazis. They are not even just punching conservatives. They're punching anyone who says things that they don't like. That's what's happening. And that's why I've had trouble because I'm not at the protest in Berkeley. I wasn't at the protest in Boston. I've been reaching out. We've had them on the show to people to give us a firsthand account. But even they aren't necessarily seeing the whole picture. Even they don't really necessarily know what's going on with this Antifa group because there are very powerful forces at work that do not want you to know the truth. I read all the different conservative sites that are out there. You know, I read as much of them as I can to bring you as much information and as many different, at least factor in as many different perspectives into my own analysis of events as is possible. Weekly Standard is a very well-written conservative publication. It is neoconservative. I personally am more of a National Review guy if I had to pick between the two, which is kind of like Yankees-Mets. I'm sure that if anyone heard me who works for Weekly Standard, I like some people there that yell at me, but fair enough. They have a piece up right now by Matt Labash, a beating in Berkeley, which is this week, putting aside the uh, news uh, about the hurricane and, and all that, but in terms of politics, in terms of a purely political discussion with no, you know, without factoring into this, that the most important thing that happened this week and the most important place for our attention has been the hurricane. On the political scene, though, this is the best single piece I've read all week. It is essential. It should get much more uh, readership and viewership than the left wants it to. A beating in Berkeley, Antifa mayhem and malice in Martin Luther King Jr. Civic Center Park. Let me just read to you from some of this. This is Matt Labash of the Weekly Standard. And before I get into the quote, I want to say that what he's establishing here is that the, first of all, the Democratic Party, Nancy Pelosi among them. So so big time Democrats, not like, you know, local dog catcher who happens to have a D on his or her registration, right? Nancy Pelosi, former Speaker of the House, big player in Democrat power circles. Nancy Pelosi maligns people as Nazis who then get attacked by these left-wing maniacs and she does it without repercussion. And now I know why she had to come out and disavow Antifa this week, because before that, she was calling people Nazis or referring to, you know, fascists or racists or whatever. I'll get into it. It's in the piece. I'll, I'll try to find her specific wording because I don't want to be accused of overstating it because it is referred to in this piece by Matt Labash. But she's calling people Nazis who are, or she, whatever, she's calling people fascists. She's calling them out for racism, for bigotry, without knowing anything about the group. Because right now, this is where this is where the action is on the left. 
that's why this is so different from what we saw with the idiot racists in Charlottesville. They are they are condemned on the right. We, we, we do not we do not like them. We do not agree with them. They're gross on the left. Antifa, this gets the activist instincts of the Democratic Party kind of excited. A lot of them that are community organizers are like, you know, this we need this. They are not they're not apostates from the Democratic Party. This is the key. This is what I want you to take away from this conversation. Antifa, these black clad anti-fascists that are that are uh, shouting down and physically beating down conservative speakers that they do not like are not apostates from the Democratic Party. They are its militant wing. They are the militant wing of the Democrat Party right now. And so that doesn't mean that all Democrats agree with them or all Democrats support it, but they are the de facto militant wing of the Democrats. And they are in many cities and there are many, many thousands of them. Who knows how many tens of thousands, perhaps. I know they're here in New York City because I've seen them. I know they're in Berkeley because of the video. I know they're in Boston because of what happened there a few weeks ago. Right. And we could just go on and on. They're the militant wing of the Democratic Party. And this is why Democrats are having a little moment of introspection here. Okay, so we 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 want we we don't want to alienate the hardcore Bernie supporters that kind of like this. So that's where you get the Nancy Pelosi's that are. I think the racists are bad. You know that's where this comes from. So I just as as backdrop to this, they. They don't want you to know the truth, which is that Antifa has become the militant wing of the Democrat Party, and they don't want you to know, and this is where this story in the Weekly Standard by Matt Labash is so important, a beating in Berkeley. They don't want you to know who's getting beaten up, because if it's kind of murky or we don't know, it's provocateurs on both sides, on all sides, you know, maybe it's just more Nazis. This is Nazi punching. You know, this is great. Nazi punching is good. Who doesn't want to punch Nazis? As I have said to you. The principled ethical stand is that even people who are neo-Nazis should not be punched in this country for saying things that people don't like. And I know that that puts people ill at ease because we hate Nazis so much, but you do not respond to ideas with physical violence. The even bigger problem, though, is that they are not punching Nazis. They're just creating a narrative that allows them to get away with punching whomever they want. This is the piece. This is now I'll get to this quote from this piece, which I recommend to all of you. A beating in Berkeley. It's on the Weekly Standard right now. Please, this weekend, read it. I'm, I'm asking you, please read it. It's not my piece. I don't get paid. I'm not, this guy's not sponsoring the show. This is just, read this piece. So that as we go forward talking about Antifa together, we'll have this point of reference. Here's, here's the piece. Quote, as white supremacists go, Joey Gibson makes for a lousy one. For starters, he's half Japanese. I don't feel like I'm Caucasian at all, he says. Not to be a stickler for the rules, but this kind of talk could get you sent to Master Race Remedial School. And it gets worse. The founder of Patriot Prayer, a Vancouver, Washington-based operation that sponsors rallies and marches promoting freedom and First Amendment rights, along with all-purpose unity, also spews... Hippy-dippy rhetoric like moderates have have to come together and love and peace are the only way to heal this country. Joey tends to sound less like an alt-right bully boy than a conflict resolution facilitator or a Unitarian Sunday school teacher. 
for his late August Liberty Weekend in the Bay Area, which was to include a speech rally, a free speech rally in San Francisco, followed by a no to Marxism rally in Berkeley, headed by a local transsexual patriot. Joey advertised that no extremists will be allowed in, no Nazis, communists, KKK, Antifa, white supremacists, or white nationalists. Likewise, the advertised docket of speakers was to include three blacks, two Hispanics, one Asian, one Samoan, one Muslim, two women, and one white male. If becoming a liberty movement fixture doesn't work out for Gibson, he has a promising future as a UC Berkeley admissions officer. Despite all this... You'd have thought from the avalanche of alarmist walk-up stories that Gibson and friends would be dancing in a springtime for Hitler kick line. And then he goes on and talks about where Nancy Pelosi falls on. So that's the end of the quote. When it comes to Joey Gibson's quote, again, Joey Gibson's Liberty Weekend, enter Nancy Pelosi, who seems to be pining for girlhood activism days as she's billed this resistance summer. Gibson secured a permit for his free speech rally to be held at Chrissy Field, a former airfield next to Golden Gate Bridge. But Pelosi loudly suggested the permit be pulled, saying that the National Park Service should reflect on its capacity to protect the public during a toxic event, which she termed, this is key, this is what I want to get to, Nancy Pelosi termed a, quote, white supremacist rally, end quote. Nancy Pelosi's a liar or an idiot. Well, she's actually probably both. But this wasn't a white supremacist rally. This is the Berkeley rally. This is what you saw the video. This is what we talked about. This is where all the all the beatings in the street and the violence happened. And I said, well, what was, you know, this was a rally. People say, oh, it's all right. Or No, it was not. The media has been lying to you, my friends, all week. They've been lying to you about this. Lying to your face or your ears or eyes, but lying to you. They don't want you to know that this was a multi-ethnic, come-together, free speech rally that was attacked by people all wearing black, carrying clubs, wearing masks, screaming curses, cursing the police, spitting at people, using bear spray, which is like pepper spray on steroids against people, all of this. Where was this reported? Why do I have to only read this in the Weekly Standard? I, I know. I'm reading all. I'm reading the L.A. Times. I'm reading the New York Times. I'm reading the Washington Post. Where was it? Why was it so hard to find out this about this rally? That it wasn't Nazis. And why would Nancy Pelosi call a rally, a free speech rally in her hometown, a white supremacist rally and say that its permit should be pulled? Is it that hard for her to, to figure out the truth here? Here's the point. She doesn't care. Nazi punching is popular now. Nazi punching is what the left wants to pretend that it's doing. But really what's going on here is that the left, which is always where fascism has come from, the left have become openists about speech. And it's popular. And the militant wing of the Democratic Party is Antifa. And they don't really know what to do about this. I've got, I want to tell you some specifics about this event and it's crazy. Back to this piece in the Weekly Standard. Go to weeklystandard.com to read it. Uh, we'll put it up on, well, you know, we'll put it up on bucksaxon.com. We'll link to it. In the Weekly Standard, Matt Labash writes, From the moment we hit the square, the Nazi catcalls start. Whatever is happening on the stage seems to uh, cease to exist, and the energy around us turns very dark very fast. Joey, Tiny, and Pete start walking with greater purpose, 
on the balls of their feet, almost like fighters entering a ring or Christians entering the Colosseum, instead, uh, except instead of facing one lion, they're facing thousands. As the chants rain down, Nazis are here, blank you, blank you, blanking fascists. We near the stage thinking we might find some kind of buffer zone since the police knew that some of Joey's original rally goers would show up. But there isn't one. Our progress is halted when we run up into a small clearing snug up against a barrier. And behind that barrier, near the park's peace wall, is a wall of human blackness. A hundred or so masked up Antifa ninjas and affiliated protesters seem to simultaneously turn. It looks like we've interrupted Al-Qaeda tryouts. Joey, Tiny, and Pete all raise their hands high in the air and flash peace signs, a conciliatory gesture. But nobody here wants peace, not with fascists on the scene. As Joey nears the barrier, one of the ninjas swings and misses. Then the barrier topples and they pour over, chanting, Fascists, go home! As I'm reading the action into my recorder, Antifa slides around me on all sides, nearly carrying me off like a breaking wave. The boys are about 20 yards off and walk backwards. Pete catches a shot right on his Stars and Stripes dome from a 2x4 and goes down, blacking out for a second. Tiny, trying to protect everybody, pulls him up with his massive Samoan hand and pushes him out of the scrum. The mob ignores Pete as he's just an appetizer. Joey is the entree. First, he catches a slap in the head. Then someone gashes him with something in his ribs. He keeps his hands up as though that will save him while he keeps getting dragged backwards by his shirt. Tiny trying to pull him away from the bloodthirsty ninjas. Someone crashes a flagpole smack on Joey's head, which will leave a welt so big that Tiny later calls him the unicorn. Not wishing to turn his back on the crowd, a half-speed backwards chase ensues as Joey and Tiny are blasted with shots of bear spray and pepper spray. They hurdle a Jersey Berry crossing Martin Luther King Jr. while Antifa continue throwing bottles at them. The mob stalks Joey and Tiny all the way to the Alameda County police line, which the two bowl their way through. No arrests are made, except for Joey and Tiny, who are cuffed. End quote. That's from Matt Labash's first-hand piece here in the Weekly Standard. Um, must read. If you want to know about, want to talk about interest in Antifa, and and now my statement that Antifa is the militant wing of the Democratic Party, whether they like it or not, uh, you have to read this piece. Joey and Tiny, just for a point, it's a long piece, but Joey and Tiny are the organizers of that Berkeley free speech rally, which uh, was reported as some maybe, you know, maybe alt-right or something, it wasn't even just Pelosi. Diane Feinstein wrote a letter that said that she was worried that, that this would be used for, quote, hate and intimidation. The mayors of San Francisco and Berkeley also came out against the group. This group is a multi-ethnic group of people that are free speech. And when you hear their message, when you, you know, when you hear this group's message, you're like, what's why is that so objectionable to people? Uh, did you did you get any sense of this from the reporting? I mean, I, I really ask you that all, in all honesty, because all I do is read about this stuff, and I, I didn't know these details. This makes for a fascinating story. It makes for an incredible story. You would think that the press would be interested in this. You would think maybe, just maybe, if they wanted to talk about Antifa, they would learn something about Antifa. But they don't 
care what the truth is. They have a very obvious agenda. They don't care, for example, that, well, I've got, I've, I've, we're going to talk a little more about this, and, uh, and then I'll talk to you about the other piece that I want you to know about transgender Trumps. He's holding the line for America. Buck Sexton is back. This is what the Bay Area is. But the thing we have to remember is the Bay Area does not always stand for all of us equally. So when the Nazis leave, as they have left, by Nazis, bye. You have to stand up for the black people, for the brown people, for the LGBT people, for the immigrants, for everybody, every day. That's CNN host, he has his own show, uh, Kamau Bell, talking about Nazis. That was at the No Hate in the Bay rally in Berkeley, which was a counter-protest to the Berkeley free speech rally. So that's the, you know, you've got big-time media coverage of this, but it's all, oh yeah, there's Nazis in a counter-protest. From any of these news outlets, did you get the sense of the following? Again, this is a first-hand account in the Weekly Standard about what the Antifa violence was really like and who was actually speaking that these Antifa crazies were attacking let me read to you another 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 uh, important part of labash's piece here in the weekly standard quote an ethnically diverse group of patriots addressed the assembled reporters one of them will johnson announces that he is a black american and a christian quote this is not a neo-nazi white supremacy rally he says i don't know where they got that from i actually called nancy pelosi's office and asked her to change that There's no way I am a white supremacist. Looking at this black man with dreads, reporters laugh, but press on anyway with skeptical questions about the Patriots being potentially violent, forgetting that the entire reason we're in this out-of-the-way place is to stay one step ahead of Antifa, whose stated goal is shutting down white supremacists like an African-American man saying, we've got to stop this fighting in America. Did, did, any, did any of you, you know, I'm just think about all the Antifa stuff you've seen, all the postings on it, everything. Any of the mainstream media networks pick this up? I didn't even want to tell you that this rally that where, where people were attacked, and I read to you about what that attack was like, beaten with sticks, uh, sprayed with pepper spray, bear spray, People knocked to the ground, knocked unconscious temporarily. I mean, th- that's what's going on here. Did you get the sense that, oh, no, it was just Nazi punching, right? Nazi punching like Will Johnson, who is a black American and a Christian who wants people to come together and stop fighting. People dress in black and adopt paramilitary tactics as part of Antifa to attack people like Will Johnson under the premise, under the lie that he's part of some white supremacist rally. A lie that is magnified by Nancy Pelosi and Dianne Feinstein and name a media outlet that's not conservative. It's a big lie. It's a big problem. When Nazi punching includes a black guy who just, a black guy who's a Christian American who just wants to talk about how we should stop being violent when it comes to politics, anybody's a Nazi. Don't you see, this is the the whole purpose of this movement right now. This is all this Antifa stuff. It's to create 
a false narrative of they're only going after white supremacists to make white supremacists seem like they're a much bigger threat, a much bigger problem than they are, to make it seem like the violence is mostly on the right, even though we had a Bernie Sanders supporter try to kill a whole bunch of Republican members of Congress a couple months ago. Why is there so little truth being told about this? You have to ask yourself that question. I know you know the answer, but it's still one you should be asking yourself this weekend. Why is it that I sit here and I'm reading these firsthand accounts and I, 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 I'm not surprised by any of it because I know this group. I know this mentality. They, they were they were a little militant wing, the black block of, of Occupy Wall Street. And they were really bad in Oakland. People forget this now, but... You had uh, you had police having to deploy lots of tear gas and rubber bullets and cops were getting hit with rocks and, you know, glass bottles. And I mean, they just stopped short of going all out with the Molotov cocktails like they do in Greece, which is a lethal, which is a lethal assault, I should note. So you're not getting the truth told to you on this. And it's very important that you understand that. And I know you do. But you have to keep this in mind. The media is uh, perpetrating a lie here intentionally against the American media. Lies of omission with who these groups are attacking and lies about how much support Antifa really has. This story about what about Berkeley that is told in this weekly standard piece. But Berkeley, I talked to you about on the show. There's video. Go watch the video. And the police allow it to happen, I should note. The police are there in force, but they don't want to be seen taking clubs to people who are hitting other innocent people with clubs because that's bad optics in the Bay Area. So the best they can do is arrest peaceful people for their free speech rights. Arrest two guys who are multi-ethnic, non-white guys because they're, quote, part of a white supremacist rally, if you believe Nancy Pelosi. Now I know why Pelosi came out and had to denounce Antifa because, you know, uh uh-oh, this was too much. She's only denouncing it this week. Next week, you know, she'll be quiet and she'll be calling people white supremacists again. Democrats are obsessed with identity politics and with playing the race card and with dividing us against each other by race. You know, we saw the response in Houston this week, and it's been such a fantastic antidote to those politics and narratives of division We saw Americans, black, white, and everything else, helping each other, saving each other, going to each other's aid. That is the narrative of this country. Don't let the Nancy Pelosi's, the Dianne Feinstein's, the Antifa thugs, and everybody else in the media who's doing their bidding and running interference with them, don't let them try to change it. The help in Houston, those who came to each other's aid, that's the real narrative of this country. I think that this should have gotten a lot more play earlier in the week. It was an an opinion piece, actually in the New York Times, uh, by uh, James Kerchick, whom uh, I've had on before. A smart guy, very anti-Trump, but smart guy, knows his stuff, and uh, has some very interesting things to say on foreign policy. He wrote a a fantastic op-ed on the whole Chelsea Manning phenomenon. It's titled, When Transgender... Trump's treachery. I wanted to share some of this with you because if it wasn't a week where we had a massive natural disaster that affected millions of our fellow Americans, and if it wasn't a week where you had that just crowding out, understandably and appropriately, but just everything else went on back burner because of Hurricane Harvey, I think that this is an editorial that would have had a lot more people talking because 
There's some jaw-dropping stuff in here. First of all, so I'm going to read you a little bit of what Kerchik writes in this piece about Chelsea Manning, who is being hailed as a hero now. Hailed as a hero and a fashion icon, no less. Here's what he writes. Quote, the fashion world has a new darling. She's a size four, counts Queen Elizabeth I and Marie Antoinette as her style icons, and has a flat stomach, great legs, and curvy hips, according to Vogue. She also happens to have perpetrated one of the greatest leaks of classified government material in American history. But that's not the primary concern of the breathless media coverage afforded Chelsea Manning, born Bradley. Ms. Manning is the subject of a reverent profile and Annie Leibovitz photo spread in the September issue of Vogue, the magazine's most important edition. The author, Nathan Heller, portrays the graceful, blue-eyed, and unapologetic former RV Army private traipsing across Manhattan in a Gabriella Hearst dressed and Dr. Martens dispensing fashion tips like state secrets, end quote. I mean, I can't even believe that, that, that. I mean, guys, gals, ladies and gentlemen, this is just out of control. Um, there are some things that you can play games with, some things you can try to change. But this notion that we're going to take male-female attraction and flip it on its head and pretend that a man pretending to be a woman is attractive to men. This is, I mean, okay, some people are will be attracted to them, but I mean... This is now a fashion and style icon. This is the 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 cover of a storied fashion magazine. Ah, uh, uh, you know this, and it, it, there's more, by the way. Um, Miss Miss Manning, and I'm going to get to the whole Miss She thing in a second here. This is from Kerchik's piece. Also serves as an artistic muse. On her website, the illustrator Molly Crabapple displays a florid birthday card she sent the imprisoned Manning three years ago. We breathe the same air twice at the courtroom in Fort Meade, Miss Crabapple wrote. At Greenwich Village's Friedman Gallery, Miss Manning is the subject of an exhibition in which the artist Heather Dewey Hagborg, wow, uh, rendered 3D images of the former uh, prisoner using DNA pulled from cheek swabs and hair samples she made made uh, mailed from jail. Ted Hearn, the composer of an opera about Miss Manning, The Source, which ran in San Francisco this year, insists she committed a, quote, victimless crime. You have the art set in this country, not just elevating Chelsea Manning as a style icon, but also as some kind of martyr, as a, as a hero. All because this is a transgender person. All because Bradley Manning decided that he was a she and should be called Chelsea Manning and referred to with female pronouns and wants the accoutrement of being a woman without actually being a woman. Uh, This is the world turned upside down. This is black is white, up is down, there is no reality. We are all just being forced into the left's delusion. And I should note that Kerchik... Um, makes a very important point here and goes into this whole notion because now they're re- they are rewriting history on Chelsea Manning Soviet style and they do it all the time but you're seeing it in real time here here's what he writes quote that's not true about it being a victimless crime 
When Miss Manning transmitted 750,000 secret military records and State Department cables to WikiLeaks in 2010, she not only jeopardized continuing missions and disrupted American diplomacy, she also put an untold number of innocent people's lives in danger. According to The New Yorker, when the United States tried to locate hundreds of Afghans named in the documents and move them to safety, many could not be found or were in environments too dangerous to reach. When pressed by a journalist about the possibility of redacting the names of Afghans who cooperated with the United States military, Julian Assange, the WikiLeaks founder, reportedly replied, well, they're informants, so if they get killed, they've got it coming to them. They deserve it. End quote. Uh, this is appalling. And Obama commuted this guy's sentence, everybody. That's why I don't want to be lectured about Sheriff Joe Arpaio. I am sick and tired of hearing constantly about, you know, who can be the chief hall monitor for the Republicans? You know, who gets to be number one Boy Scout for the Republican Party? We are in a street fight. We are in the middle of a battle for the culture. The other side is throwing everything they've gotten, then some into it. And we want to just go after each other for every little thing. We who believe in the conservative cause, we who are constitutionalists. It's just too much sometimes. It really is. And that Chelsea Manning is being referred to in this way with this reverence on the cover of magazines that Obama obviously bought into. I mean, talk about pandering. Obama goes from being, well, I'm a traditional marriage candidate. I believe in traditional marriage when he's running. To then, by the end of his two terms, not only is he Mr. Pro-Gay Marriage President, but he's also now Mr. Pro-Transgender Rights. You better use the same restroom for boys and girls in the 10th grade if a boy wants to be in the girls' restroom, or else the federal government's going to pull your funding. That was the Obama administration. And oh, by the way, of all the people whose sentences can be commuted, let's commute Chelsea Mannings. Wow. What a message. Democrats really do have a soft spot for treason and also love to throw around the treason accusation in unwarranted fashion. Real treason Democrats seem to be like, well, you know, there was something. See, it's a, it's a whistleblower speaking truth to power. It's a transgender rights issue or whatever. And then they'll turn around and say, you know, Trump's a traitor. General Flynn's a traitor. Everyone who works for Trump is a traitor, 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 treason, treason, treason. Isn't what Donald Trump did the equivalent of treason? This is being asked by mainstream millionaire news anchors. They call things treason that aren't even crimes, and they call the worst kinds of treason heroism, and then they wonder why we don't trust them with national security. Chelsea Manning betrayed her country. She didn't make... And you see, it just happened to me. He did not make a mistake. Didn't, uh, didn't make a... Didn't have a bad day thought about this, decided to just do it just because. Because Bradley at the time wanted to just see what would happen if he lit the match. That's it. No one fooled him. No one, you know, no one tricked him. It wasn't a mistake. There's no gray area. It was like, let me just do this. Let me just push the person at the end of the subway platform and the train's coming to see what happens. There was no whistle blowing. And now... The left, in one of its shows of the perversity that oftentimes 
is the defining characteristic of the progressive Democrat Party today. You know, let's just see how much we can turn reality on its head. Let's see how much we can mix, match, and destroy gender roles. Let's see how much we can just we can kick at the load-bearing walls of civilization. The Democratic Party celebrates Chelsea Manning now, or at least the artistic wing of it does. One more note here. Kerchick's piece is excellent in the New York Times, Jamie Kerchick, and as I said, he's a never-Trumper, but I've had him on the show in the past because he's smart and he has interesting things to say about foreign policy, and this is a very good article, and it's spot on. That all said, you can already tell how they're, they're winning the argument because here's somebody who's calling out Chelsea Manning in every way he can, doing an excellent and, uh, an excellent and honorable job of speaking the truth on this issue, but keeps referring to Chelsea Manning as she. You can change your name, and that is fine. I don't want people to say that my name isn't Buck, it's actually James, although you can call me James if you want. Buck is my a part of my middle name. Um, you can change your name if you want. You cannot change your gender. And more to the point, I will not be bullied into referring to somebody by the gender that is not in fact their gender. And I, I know that the, with conservatives, we like to be polite. I fall victim to this, too. We like to be decent. We like to be respectful. And it feels like it's a pretty small concession to the other side. It's not. If you're using a pronoun for a person that is not in line with objective reality because of what the left dictates to you, you are bending the knee and you are letting them win. And Jamie does a great job, or James does a great job, see, I'm changing names. James Kerchick does a great job in this piece, but he does use the wrong pronoun over and over. And that is an indicator of just how far the progressives have come in this battle. Big decision on deferred action for childhood arrivals, the DACA program. Big decision on that expected this coming Tuesday from the president and this is going to i think be a place for the white house to establish that the agenda that the trump wave that trumpism is back baby that they're serious about it and they are going to in fact deliver on promises made over the course of trump's run for office and ever since he's been in office but sure enough, here we are, and there are Republicans who are starting to raise their hands and say, you know what, maybe, maybe I can, maybe I can, I don't know if we should do this, maybe we should wait. And Paul Ryan, whom I have heard from many people, is a really nice guy, and and seems like a smart guy, and seems like a stand-up guy in terms of his, you know, his interactions with folks and you know as a family man and i get all that but when it comes to immigration i start to feel like he is the accountant for the chamber of commerce i start to feel like paul ryan is far too invested in the investor class that he's someone who really believes that immigration should serve the desires and financial needs of a class of people that could be broadly referred to as Republican donors. 
Now, I know he's Speaker of the House. I know he's got a lot of things on his plate and everything else. And and I'm, I do not trash the man, but I'm raising the possibility that there might need to be some trashing in the future. Because I'm concerned here. Here is the latest on this from CNN. Ryan asks Trump to hold off on scrapping DACA. Uh, House Speaker Paul Ryan on Friday gave a major boost to legislative efforts to preserve protections for young undocumented immigrants and urged President Donald Trump to not tear up the program. Trump told reporters Friday he was still mulling the decision. The White House press secretary said a decision would be announced on Tuesday. Now, why should Paul Ryan, uh, why should Paul Ryan be weighing in on this? DACA was not an act of Congress. This is just what this is just President Obama deciding via an abuse of law enforcement priorities. This is just President Obama deciding that he was going to do what he was going to do. So shouldn't the current president just undo what the previous president erred in doing in the first place? That seems straightforward enough to me. Why wait for Congress to get involved? Now, you could call me cynical. I know some of you are like, Buck, you are not nearly cynical enough. That may be true. You could call me a naysayer. But given that Paul Ryan was working on an amnesty bill under the Obama administration, and given that Paul Ryan has associations with and has given speeches that certainly are reminiscent of the near open borders wing of the Republican Party, which exists. Go down and have a chat. Go down and have lunch. You know, have a latte with some friends at the lovely people and hope that they have their fantastic event this year at the Waldorf Astoria where they invent think tank people and media people to come together. Uh, The Cato Institute's got some fantastic people in it. But it also is an open borders advocacy group. They put people out there who are supposed immigration experts who say that all immigration is good. The more, the merrier, the more, the better, better for everyone. No downside. Not possible. My friends, everything comes with a cost. The moment someone tells you this is how we knew Obamacare was a lie. This is how we know that open borders as an economic benefit for all of us, including the newly arrived is a lie. No policy matter like this just comes with nothing but good. If someone's not willing to tell you the downside, then they're not telling you the truth. And with Paul Ryan, he has a history of being very pro-open borders. Paul Ryan has established for a long time now that he believes that there should be amnesty. And working on amnesty in the past under the Obama administration was... Under this rubric, under this, you know, this all this big fancy discussion about, oh, we're going to do this and that. And any talk of amnesty as not being a pathway, that's not even it's not even strong enough. It's not that amnesty puts or rather it's not that comprehensive immigration reform is a pathway to amnesty. It is a conveyor belt. It means that amnesty will happen. We've been through this before. We went through this with Reagan in the 80s. All you get is the amnesty and another wave of illegals. The enforcement doesn't happen because the political forces at play are much less likely to have the will 
to push for law enforcement to do its job when there's a whole bunch of new people that just got amnestied who want to bring over a whole bunch more people. So the problem just gets worse with each successive amnesty. And that Paul Ryan has been involved in this in the past makes me think that, sure enough, Paul Ryan wants to delay here because he wants to get some horse trading going when it comes to DACA. He wants to he he wants to make it seem like they're re- reforming it or refining it, but really he just wants to keep it. He just wants to keep DACA going. And I know that this is an issue where the heartstrings get pulled and all oh, these people were brought here when they were five through no fault of their own. Well, it is their parents' fault. And if my parents had robbed a bank and given me the money, and that was now the money that I was hoping to make a down payment on my house with my lovely new family, which I don't yet have, but, you know, just play along here. And the government came along and took that money from me. I wouldn't get to say, but, but, but my parents are the ones who stole the money. Sure. They are the ones maybe who get in trouble, but you don't get to keep the the benefit of their ill-gotten gains. Violating the law for the benefit of your family, unfortunately, falls into the same category. And the, this notion that everyone who's claiming, claiming is a very important word, protection or DACA, came here when they're five. This is for people all the way up to age 36, everybody. People who are my age. Do you know what proof they've had to provide that they came here when they're five? Zero. They claim that they came here when they were five or eight or ten or whatever it may be. Some of them, I'm sure, did. I'm not saying that they're all lying, but some of them are definitely lying. How do we know the difference? I don't trust Paul Ryan on immigration. I don't trust the Republican Party on immigration. This is where Trump most pointedly broke off from party orthodoxy. The Republican Party pretends to be about secure borders, pretends to be about enforcement, but it's really just a wing of the Republican Party that's pro enforcement a wing of the republican party that wants e-verify and a wall and to change what's been going on for the last few decades and then there's a much more powerful much more uh you know well-funded and connected beltway insider gop which is the dominant gop yes indeed i'm sure some of you're like buck it's called the swamp they want amnesty too they just won't say it They have to make it seem more complicated. We saw this with Obamacare. There are Republicans who talk to big game, but they like Obamacare at the end of the day. There are even more Republicans who will talk a big game about immigration and enforcement. But at the end of the day, they are every bit as pro-amnesty and as close to open borders as most of, if not all of, their Democrat counterpoints. So remember that as we prepare to see what happens on Tuesday and whether Congress acts or not. Don't believe the Paul Ryans of the party when they say, oh, big things are coming here. Of course, thoughts and prayers to the uh, folks who have been affected and uh, devastated by everything going on in in Houston and and the surrounding area and Louisiana and southeastern Texas, Port Arthur, uh, Beaumont. I know these are all places that have just had a, a brutal week and I feel for the folks down there and and it is all we can do to just uh, hope and pray and, and send them whatever we can whatever help we can uh, whatever money we can and that's why I've been talking to you about 
ways to give uh, on the show this week. And um, this is why I think it is so important for us to just always take a moment and, and realize that, you know, it's just you, you never know what's coming your way. You just never know. And you can prepare as best you can, but some things, you, some things it's impossible to fully prepare for. Uh, with that in mind, I've just been doing some research and some reading on uh, what it really means to be in the middle of this flood. And I think it's important for, for people to hear that when you're talking about a flood like this in Houston, it's, it's really like a, an enormous diluted uh, sewage overflow. This water is toxic. Uh, this water picks up now not just chemicals and runoff from the streets, of course, but also actual raw sewage. It uh, is transmitting all kinds of household. You know, think of all the stuff you have under your sink, all the cleaning solvents you have in your garage, all the noxious chemicals that are just around a normal home. Never mind some of the the actual chemical noxious chemical factories that have been impacted by this and has led to fires and concerns about uh, toxic fumes that could do further damage to people if they're exposed to it. Just a, a soup of gross, a soup of toxins and bacteria and viruses and uh, waste of all kinds. That's what's in this water. The New York Times wrote a, has a piece up on this, a sea of health and environmental hazards in Houston's floodwaters. And here's what they write. Officials in Houston are just beginning to grapple with the health and environmental risks that lurk in the waters dumped by Hurricane Harvey, a stew of toxic chemicals, sewage debris, and waste that still floods much of the city. Flooded sewers are stoking fear of cholera, typhoid, and other infectious diseases. Runoff from the city's sprawling petroleum and chemicals complex contains any number of hazardous compounds. Lead, arsenic, and other toxic and carcinogenic elements may be leaching from some two dozen Superfund sites in the Houston area. There's no need to test it, said a spokesman for the Houston Health Department. The water's contaminated. There is millions of contaminants. You know, that's what continues to be, you know, once you deal with the, um, the imminent threat of drowning, right? That's stage one is keep people from drowning. But even, and keep people from getting electrocuted. And uh, I know that there were concerns about uh, alligators and, and, other, and other imminent hazards, immediate hazards. But now it's what does this do to the health of Houston? Now it's does this result in an explosion of uh, Zika, for example, which tends to be more in the Caribbean and South America, but has made its way into Texas and Florida? Uh, people, I, I learned about Zika because I went to Puerto Rico, where Zika has had, unfortunately, a very high number of cases. And Zika, I always thought of mosquitoes as the biggest concern in tropical, dense jungle areas. Well, with something like Zika, because it's person to person, the problem is actually mostly in cities. And the mosquitoes that are most likely to spread Zika, and I think this is true of a Chunka Gunwa and some other, uh, I'm forgetting how to say, I, I think I said it right, but it, that the mosquito you have to worry about is not the one that you get out in the rainforest somewhere if you're in South America or not the one that you come across if you're out in the jungle in Central America 
it is in a city. It's sitting and having a beer in a bar because they're indoor uh, mosquitoes. Those are the ones, and they go from person to person to person, and they can be in a very t- small puddle. So in a, in a dense area like Houston, it's much more easy for a disease like Zika to get spread once it starts. So these are the concerns. And then if you have people that are going to be uh, exposed to any number of contaminants uh, just through their skin from being in the water, I mean, the, it, it, is a, it is a total mess. So I've been learning about what, what that means to be in this water. And it's like you're swimming in a really dirty urban river. You can imagine what that's like. Um, and then I also started to read a bit about what it's like for some of in these homes from previous uh, storms where people afterwards where things have, quote, dried out, right, where the water's receded. But then they're just left with a, uh, a film of mud inches thick in a lot of homes from all the sediment and debris that's brought in by that water. So you've got a few inches of mud and there's from the reports that I've read, and this is from after Katrina and after other uh, similar major hurricanes, there is a smell, a smell that is very hard to get rid of. And there's mold and there's so much mold that I think the FEMA guidelines are that you have to completely strip down and replace floors and walls up to a few feet i forget what the specifics were but the mold that's left over and uh and fungus and and all of the the growth that occurs and the smells it destroys the first whatever level of the house the water goes up to is destroyed and then you have the process of going through home artifacts that are left behind furniture and and very little of it is going to be salvageable it has to be thrown out because it has become contaminated with this disgusting water and it's moldy and it's dirty and you know these are the after effects these are the leftover uh problems even after the floodwaters have have receded and so i just think that that puts into you know there's the the loss of life from the from drowning that's the everyone's first concern about a major flood and then people start thinking about the property damages now it's already estimated for Houston and the other areas affected by this to be in the tens of billions of dollars. Uh, and then beyond that, you get into the health and just long-term, uh, uh, you know, long-term toxicity concerns about what this does in a city like Houston. And it really, the, the more I read about it, the more it just is a like a sewage overflow it's really not a river that has gone too high you know because of the way because of the city and all the stuff that gets picked up in that water you know they're now telling people look don't swim in it don't play in it this is really bad stuff and uh i just i can't imagine how much uh no no one can really imagine until you're going through it just what that feeling is like of returning into a, a home that has been ravaged by these floodwaters you know, the, the notion of, of, oh, the water comes up and the water leaves, you know, this isn't like a flood, like when your, your dishwasher, you know, has a leak or, or your, which can be really bad, right? Or, or if you have a, a washer dryer that breaks and then all of a sudden you've got three inches of water in your, uh, on the first floor of your apartment or your first floor of your house, because at least that's water that's clean. The water that's coming into these homes in southeastern texas is absolutely filthy and destructive and contaminated and it's it spreads disease and it just it is a it is a pestilence that's really a flood like this is a pestilence i should also note that there's 
there have been two other major floods. There's one in South Asia right now in, in uh, I believe, the north northeast India and in Bangladesh. I think they estimate that 1,200 people have been killed in that. 1,200 people. And it has left millions of people homeless. So I think that's also important to keep in mind as we look at our own situation with the flooding here. You know, we just, we're Americans, so we expect that we'll band together, our government will have some level of competency in a disaster like this, and we'll help each other and we'll get through it in a, in a much poorer and uh, less uh, well-organized government and less less well-organized, uh, you know, just in every, in every sense, community than what you're dealing with in poor areas of India and Bangladesh. Millions of people homeless now and 1,200 dead. So flooding is really serious business, and it is, it is a global problem. But here at home, of course, we're first and foremost focused on everything we can do to help our brothers and sisters in Texas and Louisiana. But, man, floods, you know, the more you learn about them, the, the more you're like, we got to do whatever we can to prevent this kind of mass flooding from happening. Now, I know this is a once in 500 year storm, so it's a lot easier said than done. But uh, floods are a, a true natural disaster, not just something that happens. They're a true natural disaster. One of the things I really like to do is find stories that other news sites aren't spending as much time on and in particular that other places maybe report on but don't understand the significance of. Uh, There are plenty of places that can tell you and then a lot of places just repeat what others have already told you about something that has happened. But my training before I did all this, of course, was as an intelligence officer. And so what the main skill set there was is they wanted you to look at a lot of information and analyze it, synthesize it, and know what is coming, and also to see what others don't necessarily see based on both expertise and the feel you have for your subject matter. And I understand the media, and I understand propaganda. So with that, I wanted to talk to you a bit more about the censorship that is currently underway from the most powerful media platforms in the world. This is a big, big deal. And other news websites and other places are, yeah, sure, I'm obviously relying on a a, a collage, a collection of different stories for my information here, but I, I don't think they grasp the significance of it. I don't think they really fully and entirely understand just what this means. Because we are used to thinking about a media ecosystem in which a few major uh, TV networks and major newspapers were able to dominate the narrative. We haven't been able to, or we haven't in the past, been subjected to a situation where something that the public views as a utility, meaning like the electric company or water company or something that's just there for your use, search engines social media platforms, YouTube, which is just a place where you where the public can post videos, right? That these are supposed to be non-political entities, that they're just there for your use. And what we're seeing now is that, no, in fact, they are not just political. They have a greater ability to influence the conversation and do it in a secretive, 
and away from the public eye fashion than anything the media had in the past. Because at least when NBC News, you know, at least when CBS, at least when Walter Cronkite would go on TV and say, oh, this is what's going on in this part of the country, you knew it was that you knew that it was someone sharing information. There was a face, there was a name, there's opinion. With Google, it's what happened in this place? Oh, Google's just presenting me with with objective search results. Oh, YouTube is just presenting me with objective search results. This is how the notion of objectivity is coming back into a information dominance position. Because the journalists of the past could get away with saying, we're just being objective, and they would put their opinions into things and pretend that they were just being objective, right? They would pretend that they were in a position to parse out what was true from what wasn't, and there was no need for you to concern yourself with their opinions. Now, with alternative media out there, conservative media with different perspectives on all this, we've seen that, sure enough, they are biased. And we get this. Okay, I know. You are past this. If you're listening to the show, you're savvy enough to know this and then some, and you could do your own hour-long radio segment on how biased the media is. I get that. Okay. But this is where it's all heading. Two different stories, both with major impact and not getting nearly enough attention. The first is from PJ Media, hat tip Tyler O'Neill for the story. Google issues ultimatum to conservative website, remove hateful article or lose revenue. So this is now a situation where the... uh, where Google, which is arguably the most powerful internet entity in the world, is now able to decide what is hateful. You know, we've seen this coming for a while. They started out with censorship of, you know, beheading videos. Oh, it's too violent. No violence. And then it was, you know, no abuse and profanity of other people. And now it's just hateful. Well, are political debates sometimes hateful? Is the subject matter of let's say, the immigration debate going to make some people think that the other side is being hateful? The answer to this, of course, is yeah. So who is in charge of determining what? Well, you don't know because you don't get to ask Google. They don't provide you with that information. They all just say it's an algorithm. You see, it used to be I'm trying to just keep keep hitting on this comparison. It used to be that the, the tried-and-true seasoned journalists of CBS News, they're bringing you the facts. And you didn't know what was going on in that newsroom. You didn't know that they were probably all sitting around making fun of Republicans and saying that they're hicks and hayseeds and imbeciles and everything else. We're just presenting you with the news. But because of the alternatives that popped up, all of a sudden there were narratives that differed with the CBS, NBC, ABC, CNN, that differed with those channels, never mind the different written Uh, components of the internet that then compete with the New York Times, the Washington Post. But now, and that's never coming back. They're never going to have the information dominance and the narrative dominance that they used to. That's the mainstream media's great lament. But now looking at what's going on with the internet and with the next generation of media, you have Google threatening to shut off revenue for conservative sites because they say it's hateful. What's hateful? Well, who knows? And Google's a private company. 
You see, there's not a First Amendment case to be made here because Google's allowed to regulate itself based on content however it wants. People don't think of it that way, but that's the reality. And then there's also a piece from today by Jasper Hamill in The Sun. YouTube accused of censorship over controversial bid to limit access to videos. The Google-owned video site is taking steps to reduce the audience for content deemed inappropriate or offensive, but not illegal. So Google, Google owns YouTube. YouTube is thought of as a different entity, but Google's so big that it also controls now the video side of the internet. And if you look at YouTube's traffic, it's an, YouTube and Netflix are an enormous portion of overall video traffic on the internet. And this is for those of you who want to know where the shows of the future are going to come from. And it's just a matter of time before a Netflix or a YouTube has a streaming audience that is larger than the mainstream cable news networks. And then news will be an online medium, right? It's just a matter of time before we no longer think of now they're trying to fight in that space, too. And that's why you have all the digital platforms that carry various 24-7 cable news programs. But as we continue to look at where all of this is going, we need to be prepared now for a future in which a very small group of companies that, as we saw from the James Damore firing at Google, are progressive in a way that is as left-wing as anything you're going to get at any corporation, any company across America. We need to start understanding that their terms of service, that their user policies, these are open to subjective interpretation. They're open to politicization. And if we are going to be competitive in the marketplace of ideas, meaning conservative, limited government, small government constitutionalists or libertarians or whoever's listening to the show, right? But you and me, if our ideas are going to matter, we need to make sure that we understand that there are some that the internet was originally the great uh, leveler of the playing field. That was what oh anyone could put anything up there. Anyone can put any anyone can put any blog up there. Now there are bigger gatekeepers in a sense than there ever have been in the past. How are you going to compete as a news organization? If Google is giving you top billing, if you're popping up in their search results at the top all the time and someone else is not just uh, falling out of search results, but being demonetized, Google controls a huge amount of the advertising online. And as I spoke to you earlier in the week, they're even influencing policy at think tanks and they have money going to so many places and in so many different ways. It's hard to keep track of all of this. People wonder, they say, how is it that the left is winning all these cultural victories, especially over the last 15 or 16 years, all these cultural victories in our, our battle for the heart and soul of this country. When you look at an electoral map right now, especially after the last election, you're like, so much of the country is red, is conservative. So many state houses are in Republican hands. Oh, that's right. We think of the media and it's what we see, it's what's branded, it's what's out there. We don't understand that, yeah, we have alternatives in that space, but the people who are controlling the rules in that space, the referees, if you will, of the media game, the Googles, the Facebooks, YouTube, which is owned by Google, and others, 
They determine who gets seen, when they're seen, who gets monetized, who gets traffic, who's relevant. They determine relevance in the conversation. And they do it in ways that you can't see and have no access to. They do it in ways that can always hide behind an algorithm. Oh, an alg- what could be more objective than an algorithm? It's almost like saying our top result is based on, our top result in search, in Google search, is based on hashtag science. Our top result is based in math. How are you going to argue with math? Show us the work. Oh, no, we don't have to. We're a private company. This is the most important, least discussed story about the media right now. And it's why I should note Trump's usage of Twitter is, is very important in many ways because Twitter is a, is a left-dominated organization. It is, a le- it is uh, left-dominated in terms of its uh, political affiliation of the people who use it and that he has turned a tool of the left and its propaganda into a megaphone for this administration and has at least made Twitter more relevant in the minds of a lot of conservatives is important. I would like to see the president more active on Facebook, to be honest with you. I would like to see conservatives, because only by playing in that space and understanding it can we then unearth all the games, all the chicanery that's going on. And only then can we start to win this fight. Because if you're into, the, if you're into information, not just dominance, but competitiveness, you have to understand who these gatekeepers are. If you believe in the Constitution, the founding, if you want to change in this country, if you want to return to lost values or whatever it may be, the Internet is the key. And conservatives need to embrace this, understand it, and in this information space, fight fire with fire. I really appreciated the response I got to uh, my, my segment yesterday where I admitted that I've, I've been nesting and uh, Molly and I have been enjoying uh, our new apartment, and I've been cooking a lot, and I like the taste of my own cooking, and I maybe have some snacks while I cook, and then I have the big meal, and maybe then I have leftovers. So, uh, you know, this has meant that now some of my, uh, my suits, for those of you who see me going on Fox News or wherever occasionally, uh, they're getting a little snug, and uh, I'm going to put a stop to this because I can't afford new suits. So I, I've just anyway, I really appreciated how many of you reached out and were like, it's all right, man, I've been there. I've been there. I'm like, I know we've, we've all been there and I'm trying to turn this around before it's uh, before I decide that I'm just going on Amazon and buying lots of pants with elastic waistbands because that's the next step. Not that I've ever done that before. N- never. Um, but I kind of I, I want to one thing that I was thinking about after I got all those messages is that for a lot of you, especially those of you who listen on podcast, which our, our audience that listens on iTunes or however you listen or, or listens on playback on the iHeart app is very large. It is uh, larger than a vast majority of uh, the radio shows that are out there that are listening to this show that are just after the fact. So uh, I, I really, really appreciate that. And I figured, you know, I love it when people call in and we get to talk on air and Freestyle Friday, especially with our action movie quotes, tends to be a time when I get the most people who want to just call in and say hi. And, and, and it's great. And it's look, I, I it's, it's what keeps me going in this business, honestly, is, is all of you and, and the response that I get from from this audience that means so much to me, which is why I devote my day all day every day Monday through Friday to getting and honestly a lot of the time on the weekends too to producing the kind of show that I do 
Um, with that said, I want to start reading some of the Facebook messages that I get on air because I get so many great messages. And you just if you're on Facebook, you go to facebook.com slash Buck Sexton. You can post there and talk to other people or you can write us at the, the Freedom Hut team uh, a direct message on Facebook. I see it. Ty sees it. Amy sees it. And sometimes one of them will respond. Usually it's me who's responding and we definitely read it. Uh, so I want to start working some of that into the show. And so with that in mind, uh, here's I ask for permission. If you give me permission, I will only use your first name, Team Buck. I'll only use your first name and I will never anything that you ever send me that you're like, look, I don't want you. To, this is just for you or I don't want you to read this on air. Totally respect that. It doesn't just go to me. It goes to our whole team here, but we will keep it uh, in in confidence. And so you can count on that. But I want to read some of your stuff because I get the funniest coolest messages from you all the time i get amazing stuff people i am up late at night sometimes going through the team buck inbox of facebook messages and i am actually loling as the kids say i am uh, i am laughing in fact there's another acronym that i could use for the laughing but it's it's a little more salty uh, but i am really laughing hard uh, uh so i'm enjoy l m f a o for laughing my freaking or L-M-F-B-O, laughing my freaking butt off. There we go, L-M-F-B-O. Uh, that's something that I, that I do. Um, I stay up and I read your messages and it's really great stuff and I really, really appreciate it. Uh, so with that said, here's one that I thought was funny about the dad bod. Uh, this is from Richard in Maryland. The real dad bod allows you to carry the kid or the kids the last five blocks to the car while shouldering the day backpack and hauling other crap. Even at my advanced age, I'm trying to stay in shape to retain some level of presence with the various hound dogs who hang around my daughters. Open carry of my CZ would help, but I live in Maryland. That's from Richard. I mean, that actually made me laugh. Uh, and there are others as well that I, I really would love to share, and um, I'm, I'm planning on it now. So those of you who like to send me Facebook messages, uh, please do. And, and, if you're, and if you're cool with me, if you think it's something that I might want to share on air or if you're cool with me, you can either put that in the message or usually I'll reach out to you and say, hey, do you mind if I read this on air? But I want to get this going, especially I'll pick some of the best messages from the week and on Fridays and I'm going to have producer Amy and, and Ty remind me of this. Uh, during the week, I want to pick the best messages. I shouldn't say the best, but the ones that I think are the, uh, I have no favorites among Team Buck, um, but and some of you are like saying that's a lie right now, but it's true. I, I, I love all of you equally, uh, but I will read them on Fridays. Uh, and I, I think that'll be a fun segment for us here. I'm also, I know I've been saying this. We are, we are so close to reintroducing commie bear to this audience. And I thought labor day would be a good day to do it, but I haven't yet. Um, we haven't yet figured out the intro, but it's coming. It is coming. Just uh, give it a little bit of time. Monday is Labor Day, or if you want to perhaps pay more of an homage to the trade workers and uh, unions that push for it, what I like to call Labor Day. Yeah, it's the day when we all gather together to talk about local AFL-CIO, local 127 electrician union, you know, talking about fairer wages, better working conditions, better hours, talking about our union representative. You know, that's one way to go about Labor Day. What's fascinating is that people don't know the history anymore. 
What's amazing to me is how few people understand that Labor Day was really just a schism from International Workers' Day, and it was the more moderate uh, Marxist types, not straight-up Marxists, but the more uh, moderate factions of socialists and labor unionists in this country at a time when there were communists in America. No one ever talks about this anymore. They're like, well, we should maybe have a different day than the International Labor Day, which is May Day, which should be known really as Marxist Day because of what it really symbolizes. So they created this other holiday. It has nothing to do with the end of summer. It's not based on uh, the equinox or the, you know, the sun at its zenith or the astrological or nope. Labor Day is all about the labor movement in this country at around the, the very late 19th century into early 20th century, which had strong communist, Marxist and socialist associations, roots and ideological camaraderie with. You don't hear this much, do you? No, no one tells you this. No, no one ever talks. Oh, you know, hey, there's a Labor Day sale this weekend, so please don't forget about your local tradesmen and your union machinists. And, you know, that's what it's always like. We've lost the meaning of Labor Day because it's about the eight hour work, eight hour work day, 40 hour work week, overtime, no more. Ah, yes, you hear about the benefits of the labor movement in this country, but do you know the origins of the labor movement in this country? Let me just give you some of the official history of Labor Day as put up on a U.S. government website, a .gov website, the United States Department of Labor, or if you want to be more accurate, Department of Labor. So here's what it says. The first Labor Day holiday was celebrated on Tuesday, September 5th, 1882 in New York City, in accordance with the plans of the Central Labor Union. The Central Labor Union held its second Labor Day holiday just a year later on September 5th, 1883. In 1884, the first Monday in September was selected as the holiday as originally proposed, and the Central Labor Union urged similar organizations in other cities to follow the example of New York and celebrate a working men's holiday on that date. The idea spread with the growth of labor organizations, and in 1885, Labor Day was celebrated in many industrial centers of the country. So that's what it—that's the origins of Labor Day. Uh, the founder, there's still some dispute about this. Here's what the Department of Labor officially on its .gov website says about it. Quote, more than 100 years after the first Labor Day observance, there is still some doubt as to who first proposed the holiday for workers— some records show that Peter McGuire, general secretary of the Brotherhood of Carpenters and Joiners and a co-founder of the American Federation of Labor, was first in suggesting a day to honor those who, from rude nature, have delved and carved all the grandeur we behold. But Peter McGuire's place in labor history has not gone unchallenged. Many believe that Matthew McGuire, a machinist, not Peter McGuire, founded and uh, founded the holiday. Recent research seems to support the contention that Matthew McGuire, later the secretary of Local 344 of the International Association, I'm sorry, let me get into character, the International Association of Machinists in Patterson, New Jersey, proposed the holiday in 1882 while serving as secretary of the Central Labor Union in New York. 
What is clear is that the Central Labor Union adopted a Labor Day proposal and appointed a committee to plan a demonstration and picnic. So this was a this is a holiday where we don't even really have an official record of how it got started or what's all behind it. And you have to dig a little bit. But when you do, and a great place to go is to look into the left wing sites that really want to make a bigger deal of Labor Day because labor is something that plays a much bigger role in their ideology. You know, there's the there's the history of labor movement in America that's for public consumption, which is the unions got rid of child labor and the unions got us the 40 hour work week and the unions got us all these wonderful things that we wouldn't have otherwise. Now, would we have had some structure put in place that wasn't based on what the unions were demanding at the time? We'll never really know because they did it and they were involved in it. And uh, it's not clear what would have happened. You know, you can't prove what happened in history that didn't happen in history. Uh, But when you dig a little deeper beyond that, it's also wait, hold on a second. What else was the labor movement interested in? And you can spend some time on some, as I do, some Marxist sites just out of curiosity. And you'll learn a little bit more about, wait a second, this whole idea of a Labor Day, where does it come from? Wait, a Labor Day comes from a celebration of international workers' solidarity from within the labor movement, which is a deeply Marxist idea, and which is, in fact, the basis for May Day, which is celebrated in other countries around the world much more than it is in America. Only radical leftists and activists really seem to care about May Day in this country. So... What's going on with this Labor Day thing? Here, I did a little digging around on a, on a site about Marxism. In defense of Marxism, it's called. Here's what it has to say about Labor Day. Quote, on May 11th, 1894, the workers of the Pullman Palace Car Company struck. They were soon to be joined by Eugene Debs' American Railroad Union, which effectively shut down rail traffic out of Chicago. The president, Grover Cleveland, reacted harshly sending troops to put down the strikers. Bloodshed and further uprisings followed. Debs was jailed, and the strike was finally put down in the middle of June. The bosses and their government were clearly fearful of the May Day riots and the Pullman strike. One reason for their fear was that the memory of the Paris Commune of 1871 and the 1877 general strikes and uprisings across the U.S. were clearly on their minds. And this explained President Cleveland's trigger-happy response to the strike. Days after the strike was put down, Cleveland pushed a proposal for an officially recognized Labor Day through Congress, which passed unanimously. It was declared officially on June 28, 1894, and was first celebrated in September of that year. Cleveland's declaration was either a reluctant election year concession to labor or a cynical attempt to draw attention away from May Day or both. The brutality of Cleveland's actions enraged millions of working people and made his re-election seem nearly impossible. In a last-ditch attempt to salvage his political future, it is possible that he rammed through the legislation in order to try to make himself appear labor-friendly. This was most likely his personal motivation. In any event, the tactic failed as he was not re-elected. Regardless, it has clearly had the effect, probably intended, of drawing American workers' attention away 
from the more clearly militant May Day. End quote. I mean, this is fascinating. Did you ever hear about this? Did they teach this in school? That we have Labor Day because it's a kind of watered-down, Americanized version of International Workers' Day, which is May Day, which is all about Marxism and collectivism and the global class struggle of workers against the bourgeoisie and all that stuff about Marx and Engels that they don't even teach kids anymore. Because if they knew the original text, if they assigned Marx in high school, then all of the warmed-over Marxism that you are constantly subjected to in college curriculum, in uh, the way the media approaches any number of social and political issues, I mean, a a huge, huge portion of the media's uh, bias is driven by a collectivist class struggle I would even say Marxist without having read the text, because they also don't really know much about Marx. They just know that to say they love workers and international workers feels good. But it's easier for the propaganda to work if you don't know the basis of where it comes from. And that's one of the one of the really interesting ways, I think, that we just don't spend any time thinking about the truth of Labor Day and this movement. You can go to Salon, which is a a left-wing dumpster fire of uh, social justice activism and collectivism and moral relativism. If you you understand those key terms, by the way, social justice, which is almost always injustice, but social justice, collectivism, moral relativism, if you get those concepts, you understand the left. That explains—I mean, you might want to throw atheism in there, too, but that explains— 80% of their political and social and economic view, those those concepts. So really, I mean, if I was making a list, there should be classes in school taught just on this. What is social justice? And I don't mean from the perspective of indoctrination. I mean, so people really understand. So people really know the activist and Marxist roots of many of these movements. They should know who the critical race theorists were. Kids should know, I mean kids, college students should know who Herbert Marcuse was. They should have an understanding of the basis for so many of these beliefs that are held widely but not understood well by most. Who hold those beliefs? They don't even know the, the underpinnings of them. You know, we talk about labor in this country and what we're, we're just fed this propaganda about how it's about fair wages and dealing with unfair labor practices and holding ownership to account. And it's just, it's all about justice and equality and fairness. But anybody who has spent any time around unions knows, hold on a second, unions can engage in their own form of economic hostage taking. Unions drive costs up. Unions, look at the automotive industry in this country, can destroy entire iconic American industries and then require taxpayer bailouts to keep them afloat. Thank you, General Motors. So there are whole aspects to the labor movement, and the massive decline in union membership in this country has uh, not been reported on nearly enough because public sector unions have really replaced private sector unions in terms of of their influence and their power. So the government has unionized itself, and the federal permanent bureaucracy in particular uses now the coercive powers of organizing, 
dare I even say sometimes community organizing, to get its way at the expense of the taxpayer. But you go on Salon.com and they have a piece. Have we forgotten the true meaning of Labor Day? It's not about the end of summer. The original holiday was meant to handle the problems of long working hours and no time off. Okay, well, they go into this and they and this is part of the propaganda down on the piece, though. They 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 also mention how this was a buy off of the more militant workers factions, quote, the first controversy that people fought over was how militant workers should act on a day designed to honor workers. Communist, Marxist, and socialist members of the trade trade union movement supported May 1st as an international day of demonstration, street protests, and even violence. More moderate trade union members, however, advocated for a September Labor Day of parades and picnics. The United States picnics instead of street protests, in the United States, picnics instead of street protests won the day. Labor Day was about the normalization of the Marxist international labor movement for American consumption and American audiences to make it about picnics instead of protests. That's how we got Labor Day, everybody. Enjoy, my friends. Enjoy. As we head off into the Labor Day weekend, I just wanted to note that uh, movies are doing really badly this summer. And this is a part of of an ongoing theme, an ongoing discussion that I want to have with you here on the show about how I think we are in, and I should say this is a pretty widely held belief, but we are in a golden age for television because of the distribution mechanisms, Netflix, and just the whole digital DVR revolution. Uh, We are in a golden age for television, and movies are having a rough time, at least on the domestic front. That's why they make a lot of these movies with an incredible amount of CGI, computer-generated imagery, uh, because they are for the international market. And if you have a Thor movie or a Fast and the Furious 15 sequel, you can dub it, and it doesn't really matter because it's not about acting or story. It's about visuals, and it appeals to a wide audience. So that's why they make these movies that just look like they're... uh, There's very little thought put into them. It's all about branding and franchises... And you're not seeing very good movies these days. And that's why even something like the Aliens franchise, Ridley Scott came back with Alien Covenant. And I think Aliens with Sigourney Weaver is, and Michael Bine, for those of you who celebrate his work in Tombstone as well as The Rock, uh, I think Aliens is one of the greatest action sci-fi movies of all time. Uh, And you might even put it in the top 10 best action movies of all time, if you don't think of it as really more of a sci-fi flick, that they're releasing an Alien Covenant, which is I don't know the fifth movie in the series or something, is and and then it's flopping is just evidence of they have no new ideas and they're running out of ideas. So and they also had a King Arthur movie, King Arthur: Legend of the Sword. I just told you a few weeks ago about the Sword in the Stone, the original. And, and let me just say this. I know we have Action Movie Quote Friday, and I talk to you about movies. Those of you listening, if you have not seen the original Disney animated Sword in the Stone, you, you, and you got kids. I mean, you may not love it as an adult, and not everyone loves cartoons as an adult. If you have kids, it's a great movie. It is fantastic. Archimedes, have you seen that um, flying machine uh, model? I have nothing to do with your futuristic fiddle-faddle, you know that. 
Oh, oh, yes, of course. Here we are. I just love uh, Archimedes. I was such a big fan. My little sister, I've told you before, sometimes calls me Archimedes. Who, what, what? Uh, because of my temperament and fondness for grumpy old man things like books and and bulldogs and and cheese. I don't know. I don't know if that's an old man thing. But nonetheless, uh, m- movies are just not what they used to be. It's the bottom line. And uh, I just wonder if you see anything great this weekend, let me know on Facebook. But it's disappointing that the only thing that seems to be working right now are just the continuation of all these different sequels. And I just find it paradoxical that it's so difficult to get a movie made. Uh, I actually tried to get a scripted series made years ago and came pretty close. Uh, Had a major studio that had a, a, a basic agreement drawn up. So I've been through this process a little bit. I know some of you are like, Buck, I didn't know you had this creative streak in you. Uh, but it is so hard to get a movie made, and yet so many of the movies made are such garbage and such crap. Uh, so this weekend, which is usually, it's a holiday weekend, uh, it's, you know, the weather is going to be a little cold up here in the Northeast, so they would expect it to be a weekend where there's a lot of folks who are going out and um, seeing movies. I, I, I expect it'll be disappointing. Uh, Guardians of the Galaxy 2 is the best-performing movie of the uh, summer so far it's the only one that has lived up to expectations uh and uh, that's just i think indicative of the fact that uh hollywood has lost its way right now it's not inspiring it's not entertaining it's just churning out lots of crap lots of garbage Uh, and it's an industry that i think is really ripe for disruption i think if somebody comes out with a, a studio that is uh all about writing and acting and movies that inspire normal people and that people can just go and see and enjoy. As simple as that sounds, I think that's a winning business model. I want to talk to you about workplace satisfaction because it's Labor Day and why not? Let's get into it. Physically take the specs from the customer? Well, no. My my secretary does that or the facts. So then you must physically bring them to the software people. Well, no. Yeah, I mean, sometimes. Uh, what, what would you say you do here? One of my favorite lines there from the fantastic and, and still, I think, somewhat underrated movie Office Space by Mike Judge, who's also the creative mind behind Silicon Valley, which I have to recommend to you as an HBO show. Everyone I know who has worked in Silicon Valley says that the show on HBO by the same name is really accurate in a lot of what it lampoons. Uh, And also, those of us who have worked in an office, which is, I know, a lot of you listening, uh, know that Office Space, the movie, really gets it. There's something that is particularly difficult and soul-crushing about 90s era, like late 90s, early 2000s, cubicle farmer situation you know when you're just stuck in those those gray plastic linoleum partitions and with the felt where you can tack up things and I just there was something about that whole culture which still exists but I think now because of smartphones and because of uh, your ability now to just be so much more connected all the time you feel a little less isolated than when you were locked away in some cubicle somewhere or in the case of Milton Wadhams, my stapler in the, the, the basement, when my office was moved to the basement, 
if you haven't seen the movie, you won't catch that reference. So I recommend you go and check it out. Uh, it's got a really funny soundtrack. I'm bringing this up because, yes, it's Labor Day. And uh, there's uh, the, the, we can talk history of Labor Day and there's all that part, all that stuff. But there's also what our perceptions are of work right now. I thought this was an interesting piece uh, in the Wall Street Journal. As workers expect less, job satisfaction rises. This is this is kind of like that old joke. If you want to be happy in life, lower your expectations, which is probably in many cases, in many ways, true. I think changing or modifying expectations is a better way to think about it than lowering expectations. But whenever they do these happiness surveys of places in uh, Scandinavia, you know, why are why are Swedes so happy? Well, Swedes don't all wake up thinking that they're going to be movie stars, professional athletes or dot com millionaires. You know, Swedes, for the most part in these surveys are like, like to cook. I'm just kidding. That's a Swedish chef. But they're they're Swedes for the most part are uh, people who just want to have, you know, college education. They want to have health care. They want to live in a clean, safe, nice place and put together a lot of otherwise indecipherable furniture uh, based on the instructions. So, you know, this is this is a difference in, a, in approach to life, right? People can happiness is what we all want, but happiness is different for all for all people. You know, every, happiness is a very individual, but it's also cultural. It's also societal. And that's why this piece in the journal today, going into Labor Day weekend, I think is so interesting. Here's what it says. Americans are happier at work, but they might just be settling for less. For the first time since 2005, more than half of U.S. workers say they're satisfied with their jobs, according to the conference board, a research group. Employment is up, wages are finally rising, and layoffs are near record lows, resulting in a more optimistic, contented workforce. That buoyancy is giving Americans confidence to pull out their wallets. Yet the data also suggests U.S. workers have changing views of what makes a good job. And a decade of bruising job cuts, minimal raises, and lean staffing has led them to lower their expectations, according to economists and labor market experts. Uh, This is a really interesting phenomenon, and it's a more uh, nuanced and, I think, worthwhile discussion about Americans' perceptions of their own prosperity and, and how they're doing than you generally get. You know, what is happening right now in this country? Why do people feel like they can't get ahead? And, uh, you know, part of this factors into the whole Trumpian make America great again idea because things have changed. Here's how, as I see it, they've changed based on my experience, both in public and private sector. Right. I've worked on both sides of that uh, that coin. Um, For one, this notion of retirement. Um, this notion of stopping work at age 65 is quickly going away. And many people that I speak to in my generation aren't thinking about retirement because, one, they figure to maintain their lifestyle, they're going to have to keep working and working. So that means they're picking jobs that they like more because they're going to be doing them for longer. And that's actually seen in this study in this pretty comprehensive study of people and their happiness in the workplace. Now you have more and more uh, choosing jobs that people like, 
and being surrounded by people they like and also shortening their commute. People, I think there's a general sense that you, you really want shorter commutes. I think telecommuting has helped with this a lot. Virtual work has helped with this a lot. The I'm going to get in a car and fight through traffic for 90 minutes both way both ways mentality has been fading away. And I think technology's played a huge role in this. So on the upside, people are just, uh, and I'm going to have to refer to workers, although it sounds like now I'm like, workers, unite, demand better wages, let's go strike. No, I don't like the Marxist, the Marxist uh, tinge that, uh, or twinge that I get uh, when I say workers, but people that in their jobs. You know, most, most workplaces now are some, are some variation of office. So people are picking jobs where they are surrounded with people that they like and that they're doing work that more or less they like and they're interested in. And that's what the big surges in worker satisfaction that we have seen. You know, people are more satisfied with that. Now, that's, I think, a, a part of that is driven by you're going to keep working forever. I don't have in this, uh, I don't have in my head that I'm ever going to be able to just stop working um, because I just don't see a, a reality where I have saved enough money that I can live a comfortable lifestyle and not work anymore for what will hopefully be the last 20 or 30 years of my life. Life expectancy will also likely increase with the generation that's now in peak earning years, which would really be in your 40s into your 50s. Um, but life expectancy will be increasing for them. It'll certainly be increasing for the Gen Xers and Millennials who will probably, although I know that in recent years because of a few things going on in this country, including uh, the surge in, uh, you know, in drug overdoses, that there have been some life expectancy changes for uh, particularly white American males in the, going in the negative direction. But overall, life expectancy is going to be increasing, which means you're going to have to work longer. And I think we also, those of us who pay attention, realize that you're going to have changes to entitlements. Uh, they're going to raise the Medicare age. It's going to happen. It's just a question of when. You're not going to get as much money out of Social Security. Uh, they're going to probably do means testing. I'm, I don't think they're going to do this in the next few years, but within the next 20 years, yeah. So people like me are thinking, okay, this is all going to be different. So if I'm going to have to keep showing up at this job or some job for a long time, I want to like it. But also, when you look at the changing expectations, and that's really what we're talking about here, people in their jobs are a little happier in their jobs than they have been, but it's because they also don't expect what they used to expect before the recession, which was a big part of this piece in the Wall Street Journal and the data that it looked at. And I should note that 51% of employees say they are satisfied, very satisfied or somewhat satisfied with their job, according to this broad-based survey. So they're trying to then break down, well, why is that higher than it was in the past um, because they have previous data on this and there's been a pretty good uh, increase for you know back in 2011 41 percent said they were pleased for example with their wages and five years earlier it was only oh I'm sorry and five years earlier it was only 36 percent so compensation while people are getting happy about their jobs, they're also less happy about compensation. And this factors into a lot of the economic uh, irritation that we all feel because we're not making as much money. Uh, people who show up for wages, there's the asset-owning class and the wage-earning class. And I've always been a part of the wage-earning class. I've never owned property. 
I don't own stock other than, you know, in a retirement program. Uh, so that's changing the way that people feel about their work. But it used to be that there was a sense of this is so unfair. Now people are just saying, look, I guess this is the new normal. I'm not going to make as much money as I want in my field. Uh, and I'm going to pay more for health care, by the way. That's another big change. So you're now paying more for your health care. You are making less money and you're probably going to work forever because everyone has been switching over except for government employees, really, to 401k retirement programs instead of defined benefit pension plans. Right. And when I was the NYPD, if I had done that for 20 years, well, I wasn't uniform, but assuming I had joined uh, the uniform side of the of the police department and I'd stayed for 20 years, I would have. Uh, qualified for a pension that I forget what the formula is, but it's like 70% of the average of your last three years on the job or something like that. Uh, Whereas in my current line of work, if I'm going to retire, it's going to be, okay, I'm 65. How much money have I saved? Have I put away in a 401k? That's it. So that also goes to the idea of you haven't saved enough money. You're not going to retire because saving enough money because you're getting paid less is so hard and you don't have pensions And you also have a workforce that over the last five to 10 years has become much more used to the idea of you're going to get laid off. You're going to work for different companies. You're going to get downsized. Employer loyalty has gone down dramatically. And the assumption is that as industries are in constant flux and changing, people are going to end up getting a new job. They're going to have to get a new job. And that was a change, I think, in the American psyche that really kicked in with the Great Recession, 2008, 2009, for a few years afterwards. It had been coming for a long time, though. But with the, uh, the acceleration of change in information-based economies, basically because of the Internet, with that process ramping up so quickly, you've seen that people, companies come and go, companies are you know, flying high, and then they're dying out. And the, I'm going to work for GE for 30 years, and then I'm going to retire and I'm going to get a gold watch and they're going to pay my health care and I'm going to get a nice pension. Those jobs just don't that that whole concept of work doesn't exist anymore. And I think there was a lot of angst, a lot of anxiety from Americans because of that. But now we're accepting it because we see it. And we're also seeing that if you embrace this change, if you adapt, if you're capable to uh, of adapting to this changing workplace dynamic, you can pick a job in a city you want to, or a state you want to be in. I know a lot of you like city, Buck, come on, city slicker, Buck. I know, I know. Uh, But you can pick a place you want to work. You're much more mobile than you used to be in terms of your work options. And I know I'm speaking generalities here, but they're backed up by the data. And you just assume you're going to move around, so then you're more accepting of it. It's about changing expectations. Our sense of what an employer owes us and what we owe the employer is different now. Uh, It has been a massive transformation in the way that labor is allocated, but more importantly for all of us, for you and me, you're sitting here like, well, Buck, why am I caring about labor allocations? This is about how you feel about your job. We've learned to psychologically adapt as well, not just adapt in the sense of being competitive in the marketplace, but to psychologically adapt, that people more and more now find themselves saying, you know what, I'm going to be working for decades, I'm going to find something I like, that fulfills me, and I'm surrounded with good people, 
and hopefully I make enough money to pay my bills. And if I have to get a new job in six months, that's what's going to happen. But if you can accept that and try to find the good in it, I think you fall on the 51% that currently are happy with their jobs, happy to very happy. Now, of course, half of people are still unhappy in their jobs, which is, I guess, a whole nother conversation. But right now, I think being adaptable and being resilient are two of the most important uh, traits that anyone can have in their career field because we're just in a period of constant disruption. And the old model of showing up to the factory, working for 20 years and retiring is just gone. It's just gone. So we can embrace the change or we can be upset by it. Um, that's how I see it, at least. That's my little Labor Day, uh, my little Labor Day throwdown for all of you. Uh, that's that's what I think is going on here, and I see it with my peer group. I see it playing out all the time now, and uh, there's just so much less ability to show up to one job, one place, and do it forever than there used to be. And you know, people I know that have MDs. What are you doing with an MD? You become a doctor? Oh no, they're they're consulting. They're working in finance. They're trying to start their own companies. I mean, this is, it's just, a, it's a different place. The workplace in America is dramatically different now in terms of perceptions and mobility than it was 10 years ago. And it's vastly different than it was 20 or 30 years ago. That's really the takeaway. And that affects people's happiness with it. I wanted to say thank you for hanging out with me. It's been a, a great first summer here in the Freedom Hut on Buck Sexton with America Now. And uh, I'm looking forward to having a nice long weekend with the family going upstate, going to be in Dutchess County, which is in the Hudson Valley. And I'm hoping I might catch a glimpse. My mom sent me a photo uh, yesterday of uh, our skunk who now lives not too close, of course, skunk who lives right off of the, the road, right off the driveway. I've seen her before, but not all that clearly. I've just seen it at night flashing through the, uh, the headlights of the car when I've driven in. And uh, my parents have named the skunk Penelope. Personally, I feel like we should name the skunk Peppy. Oh, yes. I am the skunk of the sexton property. I want to uh, take all of the fantastic smells. I want to spray my stinky brie cheese smell all over your property with my skunk glands. But I guess I don't want, I don't want to commit, you know, uh, some kind of uh, skunk faux pas by assuming that all skunks are like Peppy Le Pew which you don't see Pepe anymore, Pepe Le Pew. He's, he's sort of gone, you know. I am shy but willing, you know, all that. The, all those old cartoons. I don't know where they are these days. They must be all on some channel that I don't watch or can't find. But I remember when they were all really uh, all over the place. I hope you have a great weekend. I'm, I'm uh, going to be grilling, barbecuing, reading, hanging out, you know. I'm hoping you're going to get a chance to do the same. Have a great Labor Day weekend. Uh, if you get a chance, if someone's chatting with you and you're just looking for something to talk about, be like, hey, there's this guy, Buck Saxon, who does a radio show. You can listen on the iHeart app anytime. In fact, here, download the iHeart app, and I'll show you Buck Saxon with America Now on your phone. And you can click play, and it will just start going. It's a magnificent thing you can do for your friend, this imaginary friend of yours that we're talking about here, while you're barbecuing up, obviously, red meat, preferably burgers, and maybe some ribeyes, because that's my favorite cut. I know people are New York strip people and filet, but I like ribeyes. All right. Have a uh, fantastic weekend. Uh, I'll be back with you uh, on Tuesday live here in the Freedom Hut. We'll have a best of on Monday and I have all kinds of exciting things to talk to you about. And if you haven't gotten your gear yet, they make great Labor Day gifts, I guess. BuckSexton.com slash store. 
Uh, check them out whenever you get the chance. Also, follow me on Facebook, facebook.com slash Buck Sexton. Uh, enjoy your Labor Day, everybody. I'll be back with you in a few. Until then, Shields high.